advice that's often given to uh, people who might be nervous speaking or performing in front of crowds, that if, if you get uncomfortable, just picture the audience in their underwear, uh, which has never made any sense to me at all. Uh, it seems like that would be the most terrifying thing ever to, to do anything in front of a crowd of people in their underwear. Um, but here we are today, and I imagine that I am actually preaching this morning to a crowd of people in their pajamas. And so maybe that's a similar thing. Um, it is, in fact, very unusual to be preaching to an almost empty room and yet to know that people are joining with you. And it's an incredible thing that we're able to do that, not by uh, really the power of technology, although practically that's true. It really is by the power of the Spirit that God brings us together even when we're apart. Um, and so knowing that even in our spread out geographic locations, that we are really united as family uh, is an incredible thing. It really is an incredible thing. And so in a year of quarantines and isolations and cancellations, to remember uh, that the church is always open as long as the people remain faithful and, and continue to be present to God and aware of his presence with us. You know, this month, one of the things we're doing uh, while we're apart but doing together uh, is the family activity, the faith at home activity that takes us through the many names of Jesus. This month, we're looking at 25 different names and titles uh, of Jesus. And as we look at each of those names, we learn something about uh, the Son of God. We learn something about Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Mary. Uh, we learn about uh, the one who had so many expectations placed upon him prior to his arrival in the world. And yet so many people loved how he lived, and yet others uh, were so frustrated with the way that he acted as one who claimed to be the Son of God and Messiah, and, and at times uh, was evasive about that, calling himself instead the son of man or uh, telling people, you know, who do you think that I am and asking them to kind of figure those things out on their own. Uh, but in all the different conversations that Jesus has with people, every time he identifies himself in a certain way with a certain name or a certain title, it tells us something else about who he was, who he is, and who he always will be. But it also tells us something that, about what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. And so as our families are going through the different names, and uh, today I believe uh, the name is Great High Priest. Yesterday was Lion of Judah. Uh, and this week we're going to be going into many more of these names. Uh, there's a couple of questions we need to be asking as we think about the names of Jesus. The first one is, what does this name or title tell us about what people expected or anticipated from the promised Messiah? And so this is really thinking about what did some of these titles mean before Jesus was ever even born in Bethlehem? When Jesus was just a prayer and a dream that the people of Israel had based on the Old Testament scriptures and the Torah and the prophets and the things that they had been told about the one who was to come, what did they expect when they would pray for God to send a Messiah? And Messiah, one of the significant titles of Jesus that we'll look at later, means anointed one. They expected someone who would be anointed and chosen by God and set aside for special purposes that have maybe kingly or royal expectations. So that title teaches us about what they expected. But there's other names that Jesus has that he gets because of the way he interacts with people. 
The way that he treats those who are, uh, are downtrodden, the way he interacts with the poor, the way he treats uh, women and Gentiles and people that are often considered outsiders in the New Testament world. And he welcomes them in and loves them. And he treats them in special ways. And so many of the names that Jesus is given are given to him because of the way that he actually lives his life and conducts his ministry, and the kind of king that he shows himself to be throughout his life and his time in this world. And so the more that we study those titles and names, the better we understand the man Jesus who lived and walked and existed in this world in the way that we do today. But the third question we need to really ask as people of faith people who say that we are followers of Jesus Christ, is we need to ask, what does it tell us about how we should live as Christians today? What do the names and titles that Jesus has given in the Gospels, uh, in the Prophets, in the, the New Testament letters that are trying to explain His significance to people of faith throughout the New Testament, when we look at those titles, those names given to Jesus are often our job description as Christians today. So that when we read the names of Jesus, we need to understand that, that His names become our job description. A lot of times when we think about what does it mean to be a Christian in the world today, we jump to, you know, don't sin, be a good moral person, and use your money the way God wants you to use your money. If you do those two things, that covers most of the, the things that we think about when it comes to Christian living. But when we actually look at the names and titles of Jesus, we're going to get a job description and a vision for Christian living that is much greater than just having good morals and being generous. Uh, today we're going to look at some of the names and titles that we're going to be looking at at our homes this week, uh, with our families this week, that are given to Jesus uh, that actually reveal to us something about what we should be doing as Christians in the world today. They answer this third question. What do the names of Jesus teach us about what it means to be followers of Jesus? And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us that this is an expectation that the names of Jesus should place upon us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verse 14, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and he's trying to explain to them who they are and what they're doing. And here's how he describes them. He says, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part but of many. Paul's talking about the body of Jesus, which we know at this point in history, and Paul knows at this point in history, has been crucified and resurrected and ascended to be, with, to be seated at the right hand of God. And yet, Paul, writing to Corinth, says, Don't you know that the body of Jesus has many parts? And you are those parts. You are the hands and the feet and the mouths and the mind and the workforce and the energy and the presence of the physical body of Jesus Christ in the world that you live in today. You are the body of Jesus. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, he, he makes a similar statement to the church uh, in Galatia. He says, uh, in Galatians 3, 26 and 27, he says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ 
have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When we're baptized, not only do we become part of the body of Jesus Christ, he tells the church in Galatia, you are baptized into Jesus himself. You become co-heirs of the promise. You become part of the seed of Abraham. You really take on many of the characteristics of Jesus living and existing in the world today. And so when we think about that, if we actually believe that, that we who are baptized believers are in the body of Jesus, that we are one in Jesus Christ, then it should come as no surprise to us that the titles and names that he's given in Scripture in many ways often apply for us and apply to us. And they teach us about who we are and how we should live. And as you begin to think of these, there's some that, that as I was working through it this week, I thought, well, th those titles are clearly just Jesus's. And then I would immediately start thinking of other scriptures that call us into living like that. So, for example, I think, well, Jesus is the one and only begotten Son of God. Uh, we read that in John. He's the only begotten Son of God. And so clearly that is a title reserved just for him until I remember the passage I just read in Galatians that we are, uh, we become children of God. Uh, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, which makes me, through faith, a son of God. And it makes many of you, through faith, a daughter of God. And so the title that belongs to Jesus becomes a description of how we should live. We should live as God's adopted children, adopted through faith. Adoption is such an incredible and, and beautiful thing for parents to say, I claim this child as my own, and that child to claim those parents as their own, and for it to become this forever bond that is unlike anything else. And, and for people to know that that is the relationship that we have with God because we're in Jesus. We become the sons and daughters of God. Uh, in other ways, there are certainly some titles that, that I can't, at least at this moment, come up with clever ways to think about or scriptural ways to think about how it would apply to us. Uh, yesterday, the, the name that many of our families were talking about in their homes was that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. That he is the Lion of Judah, and he has this special role as the promised one who came out of the tribe of Judah. Uh, I don't have any significant way to think about myself as a Christian being a Lion of Judah. I don't have any significant way to think about how I am the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, when we think about Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. That's true to, to Jesus. And I can proclaim that he is the way. I can guide people in the way. And, and in fact, the early Christians were called the way. So we'll talk about that one a little bit later. Uh, but really, uh, when it talks about being the truth, Jesus is the truth in a way that I can only proclaim. And so some of these don't function in this way, but we need to look and study the ones that do. So today when we talk about Jesus being the great high priest, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4. And we read this passage earlier. I want to read it again. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, it says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The significance of being a great high priest is that the high priest had the responsibility of being a religious, a political, a community leader of all kinds of different significances within Jerusalem and within Israel. The great high priest had the responsibility of of a number of tasks within the temple, that he would perform sacrifices and rituals, that he would intervene and mediate between the people and God. So one of the big questions in the Old Testament is, can God dwell among sinful people that aren't faithful to him? Can he live among them without his wrath and judgment being poured out on them? And the system of sacrifices and temple worship and the system that was led by, in many ways, the great high priest, the high priest in the Old Testament, uh, is established so that the people may dwell in God's presence and God's presence may dwell among them because of the work of the priest. The priest who would perform sacrifices, the priest who would perform rituals, the priests are are there, they're bringing the world to God and they're able to bring God into the world in a way that lets people interact with with God in a very faith-filled way. Without the high priest fulfilling their role, there's not going to be God's presence dwelling among his people. So in the book of Hebrews, where it tells us that not only do we have a high priest, but we have a great high priest. The greatest and most significant of all the high priests that have ever been is Jesus. And Jesus isn't a high priest who's so high and mighty and other that he can't relate to us because he lived with us. He was one of us. He is one of us. And he did struggle and continues to to have these, these difficult things of being human. Jesus as a man, can relate to the struggles that you and I go through. And yet he's still the one that stands between us and God. The high priest who's constantly drawing God into the world and the world to God. And it would be easy to think that that's a role that he plays and we don't. But Peter, in his first letter, writes about how we too, who are followers of Jesus, become priests. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse, uh, let's go to chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes, You are a chosen people. He's not talking to Israel. He's talking to Christians who are now filling the role that God planned to Israel that is now being worked out through Christianity and the church. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We then, as Christians, become this chosen people in a royal priesthood. We have the job that Jesus had in perfection, the great high priest. We now claim to be his people, and Peter says, if you're going to be the people of the great high priest, you're going to be a royal priesthood too. You're going to be people who have the authority of the line of kings and the religious function of bringing the world to God and God to into the world. 
You're going to be a priesthood who carries out this tradition of God being brought into the world through the faithful actions of his priests. And so here we are today uh, sharing in this instruction as a church scattered among all of our homes, since Peter wrote to those scattered among the nations, we today proclaim this to those scattered among our houses and homes, wherever we are, uh, that you are a priesthood. You are priests that are doing the work of bringing God into the world and the world to God. So the name of Jesus teaches those who claim to be Christian what our job is really all about. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, is one of the very first names in the Gospels given to Jesus. Uh, this is one we read last week, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. They will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Many of my favorite Christmas songs sing praises to Emmanuel, God with us. And it's incredible to think that God, who is the creator of the universe, allowed his son, part of the Trinity, to become human and dwell among us. It's one of the most incredible parts of the gospel is that Jesus came down, that he learned to live among us and talk with us, and teach with us, and experience the difficulties of being one of us and among us. And it would be easy to think that if God with us is one of the names that are given to Jesus, and He is God living in, in our very midst, how could that in any way be a job description for us who claim to be Christians today? Well, in John chapter 14, starting in verse 15, Jesus is talking to the apostle shortly before he's about to get arrested and crucified, and he tells them this, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. With this promise, Jesus tells us that Emmanuel is going to go be with the Father, but the Spirit is going to come and be in us. And so as we are baptized into Jesus, who is with the Father, the Spirit comes and is with us, bringing the presence of God into the world forever. Jesus has ascended to be seated at the right hand of God, but the Spirit dwells in every single one of our homes today. If you're in Jesus Christ, the Spirit is in you. Emmanuel, God is literally with us. The Spirit of God dwells in us so that if the world asks, wouldn't it be great if Jesus were still here today, we should be able to say, Emmanuel, God is still with us. His Spirit is in me, and I'm here today with you. His title gives us our job description. We learn about how we're to be living in this world by understanding the names that Jesus is given. So in John 1.29... 
Jesus is, it talks about Jesus. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. The Lamb that was slain. And there's so many different images of the Lamb being sacrificed for the purpose of salvation in the Old Testament. There's the Lamb's blood that was spread over the doorpost as the people were coming out of Egypt so that they would be spared while the Passover took place. That they would be set free from Egypt to become God's people, free from Pharaoh. It began with the shedding of Lamb's blood so that they could be saved. There's the Lamb that were sacrificed uh, on the altars in the temple and that, uh, that were eaten as a meal, bringing people together, getting rid of their sin for a time so that they might dwell at a feast in God's presence. And there's all these images of the lamb being sacrificed for the purpose of salvation, but none of those lambs come close to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. What Jesus accomplishes on the cross is truly and forever dealing with the sin problem and the death problem and the problem of us being separated from God by our sins. And he becomes the lamb that was slain so that we can have grace and eternal salvation. How could we even begin to, to live into that title? But then Paul writes to the church in Rome, chapter 12 of Romans and he says, therefore, I urge you, brother and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Jesus is the lamb that was the living sacrifice, crucified on the cross to save us from our sins. His blood saves us. Paul, when writing about what it means to be a Christian, says, live your life, brothers and sisters, those who are in Jesus, live your life in such a way that you are a living sacrifice. Live as lambs in the world, willing to be poured out so that others might be saved, willing to be poured out for the benefit of God and his kingdom purposes. There's so much of this that, that calls us to hold nothing back from God, but to be fully invested in Him so that we will give Him our full life, that there is nothing we hold back from the God who gave His one and only Son to call us to live like Him in the world as lambs who are living sacrifices. And it's not just in the giving of ourselves and the emptying our, ourselves. Uh, we know that Jesus became obedient to God, even leading to death on the cross. And so Paul calls us in Philippians to empty ourselves as well, that we take on this Christ-like living, where we humble ourselves and become obedient, even to, to being willing to give our very own lives for God. That we're not going to hold on to anything. We pour everything out for the sake of God and His kingdom. But we know with Jesus that at the end of that, that God exalted him to the highest place, so that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. And we're invited into that part of Jesus's life too. Because in Revelation, we're told that Jesus is King of Kings. Chapter 17, verse 14, it says, they will wage war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will triumph over them because He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with Him will be His called, chosen, and faithful followers. 
One of the great names that Jesus has is that he will be called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's not all about the humility. It's a willingness to empty yourself so that God exalts you in the end. So that God lifts you up. That God gives you a mansion robe and crown. This is the God that took Jesus and now makes him, by the end of the story, King of Kings. And it feels arrogant for us to say, yeah, we deserve that title too. We deserve to be considered uh, kings and queens in our own right. Those who are are called to be uh, lords and rulers over the entire universe at the end of time. And yet, in the same book, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, it says, To the one who is victorious. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus says, listen, if you're victorious, if you overcome sin and lostness, and you can only do it through grace and through Jesus Christ and faith in him, but if you do that, if you are baptized into me, and if you overcome everything that the world throws at you, and some years, and some months, and some days, it feels like the world is throwing so much at us. And it would be easy to say, God, this is just too much this year. It's too much anxiety. It's too much frustration. It's too much disappointment. It's just, how do we endure a time like this? And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you this. If you do endure this, if you do overcome this, if you are victorious over all of this, then you can sit with me and share my throne. And so Jesus' name, King of Kings, becomes our job description as his people because he shares with us the great gifts of being who he is. Who he is becomes how we live. His name's our job description. So if you're ever tempted to think that Christianity is really just about having the right morality and staying away from the right sin, the wrong sins and uh, staying away from saying things you shouldn't say and doing things you shouldn't do and, and about having the good financial management so that you realize what your blessings are and you share that with those who have less than you. If you think Christianity is just about morality and finance, you're missing it. You're missing it. Christianity is about so much more. It's about being called into the overwhelming, adventurous, and exciting life and ministry and eternal kingship of Jesus. Because his titles become our lives. And not just for a while, but for all of eternity. So when we think about living in this Jesus way, we need to think about what it means for us to be priestly in the world to be taking God and bringing God into the world and bringing the world to where God is and helping to to be the intercessors that, that bring the world to God, that are God's presence because we are also living the presence of God. We who have the spirit of Jesus and of God dwelling within us have the presence of God and we need to take it into the world and bless them by letting them know that God is with us. Emmanuel. We need to be the people who realize that living as living sacrifices means that we can't hold on to the things that we want, but we instead give freely to God whatever it is that he desires from us so that we might be an offering for him as Jesus was the lamb that died for us. 
We're called to be the people who understand that it's not all about loss, that it is about victory, so that all of us who are victorious in faith overcome everything. I've talked to several people this week that are members of our church family that are struggling, struggling with anxiety, struggling with depression, struggling with with feeling a lot of defeat this year. And, And here's what I want to tell you. When you're victorious, you get to share Jesus' throne. And so whatever you're going through right now is temporary, considering the throne that awaits you at the end. And I'm not just trying to give you some, don't worry about this life because the next life is better. While that's true, many of the blessings that come with being uh, aligned with the King of Kings start right now. Because while the world's happiness is based on circumstances, our joy is rooted in an eternal kingdom. And that kind of joy can't be shaken by circumstances. Jesus gives us what we need to get through this time through giving us his spirit, which is with us, giving us the things that we need to get through this moment and the next moment. The names of Jesus that we'll be talking about this week in our homes, uh, be sure to ask the question. If Jesus is the great high priest, what does that mean that we need to be doing if we're the body of Christ today? If Jesus is God with us, how do we be God in the world today? If Jesus is the Lamb of God and King of Kings, how do we embody and live out those characteristics of Jesus in our lives today? How do we become those people? And the invitation that I want to offer you this week is this. If you need to respond to the gospel, reach out to us this week, and we'll find a way that you're able to do that. But if if you don't need to respond directly to the gospel today uh, by becoming a Christian, here's the challenge I want to offer you this week. The challenge I give to you is to choose one of these four titles of Jesus. Great High Priest, Emmanuel God with us, Lamb of God, King of Kings, and choose to find some way to intentionally live that into your life in a greater way this week. Or maybe this month as we spend time thinking about the names of Jesus. Choose one of the names of Jesus. If not these four, choose another one. That that you think, man, I need more of that. Maybe it's that you need more Prince of Peace. Maybe it's that you need more of the confidence that you're not left out, that you are an anointed one like Jesus. Because the things that Jesus are called becomes the kind of people that we who are in Christ become. Who are you becoming that makes you more and more in the image of Jesus Christ in the world? And how can the world see that and be brought to God through our priestly living? May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. May those who have ears to hear hear the word of the Lord.